Well, friends, we do, we do turn our attention back to the Gospel of Mark this morning. We've been making steady progress through Mark for several months now, and we come to the third chapter and the 13th verse this morning. I'm going to read verses 13 through 19. And uh, I would ask you to please stand as you're able for the reading of the word. Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. And he, that is the Lord Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him. And he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Friends, let me start by reminding you this morning that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And he is not Lord in name only. That is not a symbolic title given to a mythical man. But Jesus Christ actually lives, and he really is the Lord of heaven and earth. The Bible, the Word of God, is not like any other book. Those of you that have been studying it for years, uh, you're probably increasingly convinced of that. It It is filled with wisdom, wisdom unlike any other wisdom. And a short passage like this one that we just read that is mostly a list of names upon careful inspection does give deep and significant insight on a variety of topics. This passage that we're looking at this morning, there are lessons to be learned about discipleship. There are lessons to be learned about leadership and the functioning of the church. There are lessons to be learned, most importantly, about the person the character and the purpose of Jesus Christ, who is the Lord. As we've been studying Mark together, if you've been here very many Sundays in recent months, you'll remember that an ongoing theme in Mark's gospel at this point is the theme of authority. I mean, it really is the theme throughout Mark's gospel, one of the themes, but it's been one that we've looked at especially carefully as in recent sections of the gospel of Mark The Lord Jesus has demonstrated his authority over illness, over physical suffering, over demonic powers, and over religious traditions and the commands of the Pharisees. The theme of authority continues here in our text this morning, and it will continue in passages to come that we'll be looking at this morning. It is specifically his authority in the lives of his disciples. And by disciples, I mean his followers, his students. The word disciple comes from a Latin word that just means student. It means those who are followers of the Lord Jesus, students that learn from him and walk in his ways. And in that way, 
Disciple is just a synonym for Christian, really. To be a Christian is to be a disciple. And to be a disciple is to be a Christian. The text this morning that we're going to look at, this passage, is about those whom he calls to be his disciples. Those that he calls to serve him. How they will serve him and what that serving will entail. And friends, a study of this passage for the next few minutes will refresh and deepen, Lord willing, our understanding of what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus. Now this passage is probably, uh, got a subtitle in your text, something like the Twelve Apostles or the Calling of the Twelve. This is the text in Mark where the Lord Jesus identifies those twelve men that he is going to set aside from among his disciples to be apostles. Now, he calls them here not out of obscurity, out of their regular lives the way that he did in chapter 1. But rather, at this point in his ministry, there is a large group of disciples following him, a large group of people who are making themselves students of the Lord Jesus. That group is ebbing and flowing in size depending on the miracles that he's doing and the sort of teaching that he's doing. When he feeds them all a bunch of bread, they say yes, and the crowd grows. And when he says, you've got to eat my flesh and drink my blood, they say, whoa, this is a hard teaching. I think we're going to reconsider our discipleship. But there is a large group of disciples here, and from among those disciples... The Lord Jesus chooses 12. He went up on a mountain and called to him those he desired, and they came to him, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. These 12 disciples, these 12 who are called apostles, he chose to be the primary earthly instruments through which he would send his gospel to the nations after his resurrection. The word apostle literally means something like messenger, emissary a herald who had been sent to proclaim a message. The, the fact that there are 12 of them is largely symbolic. There, there were 12 tribes in Israel, 12 sons of Jacob. And so this new people is going to have 12 sons at its head. The 12 apostles are unique in human history. By that I mean that there are no apostles today. There is no apostolic succession in the, either in the Roman Catholic sense where there is a, a figurehead, hands laid upon person after person down through the centuries until you get the Pope today. And there is no real apostolic succession in a charismatic sense either where people are appointed to be apostles, uh, modern day apostles as some claim. There, there is apostolic succession, but really only in the sense of what the apostles taught. I would hope that Grace Church would fall into the line of apostolic succession in the sense that what you're going to hear preached from the pulpit here is exactly what the apostles were teaching. It's a different language, but it's the same scriptures. It's the same gospel. Even though there are no modern-day apostles in the sense that these 12 men were apostles, there are definitely lessons for us to learn from this passage in the appointing of the 12 apostles. 
the apostles themselves serve as a pattern of leadership for the church, and in that way there are important lessons for us as a whole. All of these apostles were themselves disciples. It's rare in the Gospel of Mark, especially to see the word apostle. There's only one other place that it's used. These men are, from now on, almost exclusively referred to as disciples again. And since that is the case, since they are not only apostles but also disciples, there are lessons about discipleship for all of us too. But above all, we learn about our Lord Jesus himself in this text. There are lessons for us here about him. He who does the calling teaches us. The outline that I have for you today, there are two points. Uh, the first one has to do with Christ's call. And the second has to do with the work to which he calls them. The first is his call. The second is his work. By that I mean what it is that he is calling his disciples to. So the first point about his call. This is the point that I want to make from this text. <clears throat> it is the Lord's will that is the decisive force in the call to discipleship. It is not ours. It is the Lord's will, not ours that is the decisive force in the call to discipleship. Look, look back at verse 13 here in the text. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now you note the repetition there. He went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. The emphasis is clearly on Jesus Christ and what he is doing, on his will expressed in this call, not on the will of those individuals that are responding. This is a very specific time the Lord Jesus has appointed to do this work of calling these disciples. There are clearly specific individuals whom he has chosen. The text says, those whom he desired. And when they come to him, they come in obedience to his command. Not just following through with their own bright idea. Note how the Lord Jesus is depicted here. He is not depicted like a, a teacher or a religious guru who, who needs followers. And these 12 bright-eyed young men do him a favor in choosing to be his most faithful followers. That's not the way the text depicts this scenario. Rather, Jesus is pictured here in this text more like a king, seated in power and issuing commands, choosing himself those that he's going to bring near to him. And friends, he's depicted that way because that's who he is. He is not just a religious teacher scrambling for followers. He is a king. We've seen that in the text leading up to this. And so when he sits on this mountain and calls those whom he desires, and they came to him, they are responding to the call of their king. The text is written in a way that emphasizes that it is his choice that these men be his apostles. Now, there are two lessons I want to point out to you about that. The first has to do with the Lord Jesus himself. And it has to do with his sovereignty. We unashamedly confess as a church that God, the living God, is himself sovereign. 
And by that, we mean that he does exactly what he wants to do. And not only is he sovereign, but he is just and good, which means that what he wants to do is absolutely right and good always. God chooses to do everything he does according to his own preference. And he does it in exactly the way that he chooses to do it. And no one and nothing ever pressures him or forces him to do otherwise. The living God, enthroned in heaven with the earth as footstool, he cannot be frustrated. He cannot be coerced. He cannot be stopped from accomplishing his purposes. According to his own nature, his own plans, his own pleasure, he acts exactly as he sees fit to act. And he does so independent of outside influence. Now, previous generations of Christians sometimes referred to this doctrine, this truth, as the, the just liberty of God. That God is free to do exactly as he pleases and that it is right, it is just for him to do exactly as he pleases because he is God. That's who we're worshiping this morning. He is not a peer in that sense. He is not a peer of ours. He is wholly separate from us in that regard. Yes, he condescends to us. Yes, he humbles himself to be accessible to us that we might partake even of his flesh and blood, of his sacrifice by faith here at the table. But, oh, friends, it's not us that reach up and pull him down from heaven. No one ever could. The sovereignty of God applies to his creation, to providence and general, the unfolding of his will and circumstances day after day, generation after generation. As we come and go, his purposes are accomplished. But also specifically in relation to individual people and their response to him and to his will. God's sovereignty when it is applied to the issue of individuals and their response to him, that is sometimes referred to as unconditional election. There's a pattern that you see clearly in the scriptures. The Lord God chooses Abraham. He chooses Moses for himself. He chooses David for himself. He, he appoints Jeremiah. He appoints Ezekiel, and on and on. And in the New Testament... The saints are spoken of in a, in a very similar fashion. The Apostle Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What is he referring to there when he says the, the foolish, the weak, the low, and the despised? He's referring to us. We are the ones that he chose so that no human being might boast. Again, in Ephesians chapter 1, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, 
that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. This is why the Apostle Paul in so many of his epistles in the New Testament refer to the people of God as the elect. The Apostle Peter does multiple times in his epistles. Romans chapter 9 addresses this doctrine in some detail. And in Acts chapter 13, we see it worked out in practice as the Holy Spirit tells us that all those who were appointed to believe responded in faith to the gospel message. All of this, I think, is, is summed up so perfectly in Revelation chapter 17, verse 14. The Lamb will conquer for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Now, friends, this is important uh, for, for first because we have got to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is calling his apostles here in Mark chapter 3, is that very same God. He is the one who is doing the choosing, the calling, and the appointing. You see it worked out here. He calls those whom he desires, and they came to him. But you hear it from his lips in John chapter 15. You did not choose me, but I chose you. And that's important for us to remember, friends. It's important for us, Grace Church, to remember. Because that is our story. Mark chapter 3, verse 13. Our, our story, each of us individually, our story is not, well, I considered Christianity and I found it persuasive and so I've chosen to align myself with Jesus for now. The world may think of it that way. And in fact, sometimes we might fall into that pattern of thinking about ourselves, but that is not what has happened. That gives me far too much credit Far too much glory. No, the, the true story is what we see here in the scriptures. He came to me and called me to him because he wanted to. He chose me and I responded and I obeyed. Not because I was wise enough to choose him, but because he was kind enough to choose me and call me to himself. Friends, you've got to remember, this is why we are Christians. The king came to us and called us. In his own time, by his own will, because he wanted to. Not because we were impressive to him or he saw great potential in us, but because in his love, he chose to make us the objects of his mercy and his grace. Friends, do you believe that? That is the testimony of the scriptures. If you believe that, that should make you humble. It should make you grateful. Brothers and sisters, be grateful. Ha have you been grateful to him for this lately? Have you thanked him for appointing that time that he would come and he would speak with that voice that his sheep know. That voice 
that speaks into the darkness. And you, though you were dead, dry bones, you awoke when you heard it. When he said, arise, my beloved, and come away. And you lived, and you came, and you followed him. Have you thanked him for that recently? That's what we've come together to do today, to thank him and to worship him for it. This is the God who calls his apostles in Mark chapter 3. This tells us something about him. It also tells us something about our response to him in discipleship and responding to his call. And that is that being his disciples, it does involve surrendering our will to him necessarily. It involves submitting to him. To be a Christian means to submit ourselves to Jesus Christ and his will. For all of the tenderness and the compassion and the humility that our Lord demonstrates throughout the scriptures and that I have been highlighting to you in recent months in the first few chapters of Mark, we must remember that he is ultimately a king. And he's not only a king, he's the king, capital K. And to respond to his call to discipleship, to respond to his voice necessarily involves surrendering our lives to the determination of his will and giving ourselves to him. And in a very real sense, that's what discipleship is. That's what Christianity is. It is abandoning our own will in submission to his, trusting in him and not ourselves. And it couldn't be anything else because of who he is, you see. He is the Lord of all. And so everything gets rendered to him. Now, this is often misunderstood in our time. Oftentimes, people identify themselves as Christians because they, they like the teaching of Jesus or they agree with his principles or they like Christian traditions and they're valuable to them. They think of a Christian lifestyle as something that will make them successful, that will make them happy. But still, in all of this, in the end, it is them making the call. And their allegiance to Jesus Christ is only as strong as their preference. And when circumstances change and their preferences change, they're gone. And discipleship goes just as it came. In that way, sometimes, friends, we're, there are too many of us thinking of our Christian allegiance, our allegiance to Jesus Christ in terms of allegiance to a political candidate. I like what he's got to say. I like the way he thinks. I like his perspective on things. I think I'm, I'm a supporter of his until he does something I don't like, until he tells me something I don't want to hear, and then I'm ready to jump ship to see what else is out there. That is far too often the attitude that we have towards Jesus Christ. Real discipleship can never be like that. We're not supporters of the Lord Jesus. Or as one popular book put it recently, we're not fans. To be a disciple is much deeper than that. It involves an abandoning of our own self-determination. We'll get here in, a, in due time, but in Mark chapter 8, the Lord Jesus calls the crowd to him with his disciples, and he says to them in verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. 
For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Friends, that's, those are not the words of a, of a teacher scrambling for disciples and you do him a favor if you respond. Those are the words of a king. The heart of a Christian, the heart of a disciple, is not, I think that this is the best. I think this way is superior. This is what I've chosen. But rather, the Lord Jesus' own words in Luke chapter 22 when he's in Gethsemane, when he speaks to the Father and says, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, have you considered discipleship? Have you considered your Christianity in this light? Now, too often we do not get there. It is easy to talk about what Christ has done for us. Oh, and friends, it is vital to talk about what Christ has done for us. That's what we've been talking about all morning. It is profound what Christ has done for us in his bearing our sins to the cross and dying in our place as a substitute to atone for our sins, that we might be forgiven. Everything rests on him. But that is not the end of the story. What does he require of us? This one who rises from the dead with authority over death and the grave, when he sits on his throne, what does he say? He says, come follow me. Will we respond? He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. Now, this brings me to my second point. My second point and my last point. Having considered this call itself, I want now for us to consider that to which they were called. They're called to him, to his work. The call is about him, and so ultimately is the work. The point that I, I want to make to you is that the Lord Jesus is not only the source of discipleship himself and that call, he is also the focus of discipleship. Look at verse 14 in Mark chapter 3. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him. And he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He calls them first to himself. I, I think we could talk about that all day long. You could think about it all week long. I suggest that maybe you try doing that. When the Lord Jesus calls them, he calls them first to himself so that they might be with him. Consider this. I mean, when the king on his throne calls his servants to himself, those whom he's desired that he's chosen, what is his will for them? First and foremost, that they might be with him. Not just to do work he's appointed, not just to serve, not just to live a certain sort of life, not just to learn or to believe certain things, but to be with him. Now, as you know, the apostles did literally live their lives with him. From this point on, during his earthly ministry, they traveled with him, they took meals with him, they walked with him from here to there, they sat with him. 
day after day and night after night. But, but this is the call of all who would be disciples, not just these 12. Even today, he has called us that we might be with him. Well, not physically, of course. He has, he has risen, and he has ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. But spiritually, the call to discipleship is the call to be with him, to walk with him, to live life with him in his presence by faith. Friends, Jesus Christ is not the means to an end. He is not the means to some greater good. He himself is the end, and he himself is the greatest good. He's not a means to get to heaven or to get your life together. He himself is the source and is the focus of all things because he is God himself. He, God, is the very thing that our first parents lost in the Garden of Eden when they sinned against him, when they, when they rejected him in favor of everything else, including themselves. They were plunged into darkness. And beyond all the blessings that they lost, all the life, they lost him. And that was the greatest loss. They were separated from him. And so, friends, Christianity and discipleship as a Christian is, of course, in a sense, the inverse of what happened there in the garden. Our first parents looked at him and said, He's not worthy of all glory. In fact, I think that I ought to have some. I think these other things are worthy of my trust. Discipleship is the exact inverse of that. For someone to look at him and say, he is worthy of all glory. I am not, and neither is anything else, and I will put all of my trust in him that flow that was broken up into all creation and we bow before everything in our sin is unified again when we recognize Jesus Christ is the one who's worthy of glory. Rather than counting other things more important to consider him the treasure above all. And that principle is illustrated in Matthew chapter 13. You remember the treasure in the field, the pearl of great price. It's worked out before our eyes in Luke chapter 10 with Mary and Martha. Martha, who is busy with all the serving, and Mary, who's sitting at his feet. And the Lord Jesus says she has chosen the better portion. Friends, discipleship, Christianity, is not just doing things. It is turning our attention to the Lord Jesus himself. It is, it is listening to his voice in his word. It is pouring out our hearts to him in prayer. Not just prayer as a ritual, but speaking to him as though we're speaking in his very ear. Walking through the days of our lives in the awareness of his real presence and trusting in his mercy, believing his promises and turning to him in faith again and again and again, day by day by day. When I first believed the gospel, I know this is true for many of you all, it was not, aha, Look at this religion. Aha, look at these doctrines. When I first understood the gospel, it was aha, there he is. Look at who he is. I did not understand who he was before, but now I see. 
And discipleship, in a very real sense, is simply remembering who he is and that he really is there. Gordon Birch yesterday in our, in our, our men's breakfast spoke at length about the heart that is warm towards Christ. And he made, he made it an issue of memory, remembering who the Lord Jesus Christ is. And he did not tie that to his experience as a neurologist. He tied it to the scriptures. Because discipleship involves remembering who the Lord Jesus Christ is. To be with him day after day. Friends, is that a priority in your discipleship? Is that the priority in your discipleship? When he called them, he called them to be with him. Is being with him at the heart of what being a Christian means to you. There's a, the world, the flesh, and the devil would conspire to make it something else. To make it something about moralism, to make it something about politics, to make it something, to make it anything but this. We've got to hold on to this. It's about being with him. And friends, let me make a note here as we're talking about these apostles. It's not just you, it's me. It's any elder we ever call in this church. It's any pastor we ever have here. It's anyone on staff here. We're not just to be workers and doers. We are to be worshipers. We are to be Christians. Do your elders pray? Do your elders walk with the Lord Jesus day by day? Do you know? You ought to ask them. They would benefit from you asking. That's what the Lord Jesus has called them to. Not just to do work. Not just to have meetings. But to be with him. That's not all discipleship is though. It is the first thing. To be with him. But it is not the only thing. The Lord Jesus calls them first to be with him. But also he calls them to do his work. In verse 14. Look back at Mark chapter 3, verse 14. So that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Now, much could be said about the specifics of the work here. The work of announcing the gospel and preaching. The, the work of opposing evil in the name of the Lord Jesus. And there is so much to say. We might get to some of that later on. But this morning... In keeping with the theme that I am laying before you, that we're considering together, I simply want to note the fact that it is his work that the Lord Jesus calls them to, and it is not their own. What I mean by that is Christian discipleship and the work, the labor that we do together as Christians in the church, it is not ultimately about expressing ourselves or finding our own fulfillment and being used. It is rather about extending his work for his name, for his glory. The word that gets translated preach in verse 14 here has already been used four times in the Gospel of Mark to describe work Jesus is doing, preaching. The word that gets translated authority here has already been used three times to describe Jesus' authority as he's casting out demons. He sends his apostles, he sends his disciples out to do the work that he himself is already doing. It's an ongoing work. They function as an extension of him in that work. We see that depicted in Acts chapter 1 when, when the gospel writer Luke is telling Theophilus 
You know, the, 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 the gospel that I wrote you, the first book, it was about what Jesus was beginning to do. The implication is that this book is about what he continues to do. And he ascends into heaven in the first chapter. But he keeps working. He keeps working by his spirit. He keeps working by his disciples. He keeps working by his hands and feet on earth through these people. And that's, that's really clear in the rest. Chapter 1 of, of Acts is, is kind of humorous in, in some ways. The, in verses 6 through 8, the, the disciples say, you know, what, what, is, is this when you're coming to your kingdom? You know, what's, what's the plan here? And Jesus responds, in effect, I'm paraphrasing, he says, the plan is you keep doing what I say. Don't worry about when my kingdom is coming and how it is coming. You go be witnesses, and I'll be with you until the end of the age. His disciples, the way the Apostle Paul describes himself in Colossians chapter 1 when he says he completes what's lacking in the work of Christ. He is the proxy, he is the substitute, he is the ambassador. He is the body of Christ. That's the way Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 12. Christ himself is the head and through us he carries out his work. Friends, it's important that we remember as we think about the Christian life and our labor as disciples and servants of the Lord Jesus, that we are exactly that, servants of the Lord Jesus. We are not CEOs of our own little companies. We're not directors of our own little empires. We're not independent agents working as we see fit towards some goal. We're not even partners with him, not really. I mean, in a sense we are, but it is not an even partnership. We are his servants. We are laborers in his vineyard. We're servants in his house, tools in his hand that he uses according to his will. Oh, to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be a student who sits at his feet and is with him in life, who goes and does his work to engage in the work that he himself is doing in the world, it is fulfilling. It is Joyful, it is life-giving, but friends, that's not the point, and it can never be the point. He himself must remain the point. And so true discipleship can, can never be marked by just things like innovation or creativity or self-expression. It must be marked by faithfulness and devotion and obedience. He sent them out to preach his gospel and to serve with his authority. Now, let me close this way. There are many applications to be made from this text. Uh, I have made a variety already, and there are many, many more, and we haven't really gotten very far in the text. But the point that I want to make to you this morning is that Jesus Christ is our Lord, really our Lord, and he really has all authority. I'm going to quote Gordon again from his, his talk yesterday. The Lord Jesus is not just a new friend for us. He is the king. He is not only tender-hearted and compassionate, he is authoritative. And what we see here in these disciples coming out of the world to organize themselves around him and his will is the very beginning of the church that we ourselves are part of here. One of, the, one of the commentators that I read referred to this as the church in embryonic form. When they hear the word of the king, 
He says, come, and they come. And they are no longer their own, but they belong to him. He who will go to buy them for a price of his own blood. This is what the church is in its essence. A society reorganized around him. Is that what we are? Are we religious hobbyists? Are we a semi-baptized country club? Or are we a new society organized around the Lord Jesus Christ? Not my will, but yours be done. It is his purpose that we are to be about. It is his work, it is his word, his kingdom, and ultimately, above all, his person. Friends, have you heard his call? Have you responded to it? Have you come to him and begun to live your life daily in his presence by faith? Have you given yourself to his work in his name? He is worthy of it. He is the king. He is the judge. Oh, but he is also the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is also the one that we celebrate in the table here. That is the profound mystery that we cannot get our heads all the way around. That the king himself humbled himself to die for sinners like us. And the one on the throne who calls us and says, come to me, you must give up your life. He is one with holes in his hand who has already given up his life for us. That's the one calling. We'd be wise to respond. It's a gracious thing he's done in calling us. So let's, let's pray together now. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for sending the Lord Jesus to us. And oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving yourself to us as a sacrifice. We also thank you for calling us to discipleship. And we ask you, Lord, that you would make us disciples. Make us true Christians in that way, Lord, who follow after you and learn from you and trust in you and live our lives with you. Have mercy on us now as we take, partake of this table together. Be glorified, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.